One thing we all have in common, no matter where we are and where we came from, who we are, what's going on in our lives. One thing we all have in common, I think this is true. Bear with me. If it's not true with you, then uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. But I think one thing we all have in common is that none of us have no idea what's going to happen to us tomorrow. (laughs) If you're like, no, I know exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to go to class. I'm going to go to work. I got this meeting, this thing, that. Okay, great. You're well prepared for tomorrow. Wonderful. But do you really know what's going to happen tomorrow? (laughs) A few honest souls in the room. We have no idea what's going to happen to us tomorrow. Or next week, next month, next year, in 10 years, in 50 years. We have no idea what's going to happen to us. We wonder, will we ever graduate college? Will we get married? How will my marriage go? Will I be able to have children? How will my children turn out? Will I find a good job? Will I be able to provide for my family? What will happen to our church? What will happen to our community? What will happen to our nation? What will happen to our economy? What will happen to our leaders? What will happen to our border? What will happen in the world? We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow on a number of fronts. And that produces, I think if we're dead honest, it produces a sense of fear of the unknown. A fear of unpredictable powers. A fear of losing things we love. A fear of not ever getting to where we want to get to. Sometimes just a paralyzing fear of not being able to predict what's coming. We're fearful and fretful creatures. Amen? I love a spirit of honesty in the room this morning. I want to say it again. Let's... Let's see how honest we can be. We're fearful and fretful creatures. Amen? Amen. I am. Even this morning, I'm trying to pray, and I'm just like consumed with this, that, and the other. I'm like freaking out in my prayer time. I can't even pray because I'm just thinking about tomorrow and this and that, right? Is that just me? Which, by the way, makes all of our bravado and boasting just look silly. Doesn't it? None of us are as sure of ourselves as we appear. None of us are as smart or capable or strong or prepared as others think we are. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And interestingly, one of the medicines, one of the medicines that the Bible gives us to soothe our fears is the doctrine of creation. Hey, what are you talking about, John? One of the medicines that the Bible, God through His Word, gives us to soothe our fears is the doctrine of creation. Last week, we began our study of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The Old Testament begins with an account of God creating the universe and all that is within it. How does that connect to our fears? Well, I'm going to try to show you with a quick overview of the context of what's happening in Genesis 1. The clear theme of Genesis chapter 1 is that the God of Israel is the one true and living God. Why? Because He created everything. If you create everything, you get to be God. You are God. So the main theme of this text isn't the age of the earth, literal days, metaphorical days, is this poetry, is this whatever... The main theme of this text is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who met Moses on Mount Sinai, Yahweh the Lord, is the God who created everything and therefore the one true and living God. But the goal of this text, so that's the theme, the goal is more than just theology. It's not less than that, but I think it's more. This text is also polemical. What do I mean by that? Polemics is like apologetics. It's def- giving a defense for the faith. It's, it's, arguing, it's an arguing of ideas. And I don't mean screaming back and forth, but I mean a, a defense of one idea over against another. 
So this text is polemical, but it's also pastoral. It's polemical because, as I said last week, Moses is writing a defense of Israel's God against the pagan cultures around Israel. Moses is saying that only Israel's God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the gods of all the nations aren't real gods. They're just not. They're fake. He's intentionally opposing the creation myths of Egypt, the land that they just lived in for 400 years, and the creation myths of Canaan, the land they're about to go and live in. Moses is correcting and shaping Israel's worldview concerning their origins. So there's polemics happening. This is theology. No doubt it's not less than that. But why? Why did Moses want to teach Israel these things? Did he merely intend Genesis 1 to be theological or apologetical? I don't even know if that's a word. I just made that up. Apologetical? Polemical? Is that all Moses is doing here? I don't think it is. Moses is giving us more than a lecture on creation or a defense of the doctrine of creation. The reason we can know this is because the historical circumstances at the time of Moses, at the time Moses wrote what we call the Pentateuch, Penta 5, the first five books of the Bible, the historical circumstances of the Pentateuch suggest that there was another reason to teach Israel about God's work as Creator. Think about what these people are doing, where they came from and where they're going. Israel, this huge group of people, has just come out of Egypt, a culture full of fickle pagan gods that could never be appeased or trusted. They're moving into a land, Canaan, full of fickle pagan gods that can never be appeased or really trusted. They're also heading into a land full of Lots of other nations. Did you ever stop to think that the land of Canaan, the, the, Canaan the, the promised land, it wasn't empty? Lots of people already lived there. Lots of people. Lots of nations. Some groups even had giants. So the people are understandably worried. Of course, they had the promises of God. But they also had no idea what was going to happen when they got across the Jordan River. They needed to remember who their God was. So Moses starts with creation to remind them that they were under the protection of the one true and living God, the supreme and sovereign God over all the other gods, little g, nations and armies and giants and whatever. The creator of heaven and earth is Israel's God and he's with them and going before them. So Moses is not just doing theology. He's not just doing apologetics. Moses, like any good pastor, is trying to comfort his people who are worried and scared and frightened and unsure of what's going to happen across the river. He wants to comfort the Israelites with the knowledge that their life, excuse me, that their God is the God who controls their lives. Indeed, their God is the God who controls the destiny of the entire world. Moses knows what's ahead of them is unknown and unpredictable, so he wants to bring comfort to God's children. And interestingly, he starts with the doctrine of creation. So, to tie a bow on this introduction, when we are afraid, we need to remember who God is. In particular, what our God did. If God can speak and create galaxies he can take care of you. Anybody believe that? If God can speak and create the Rocky Mountains and oceans and elephants and whales and on and on, we'll, we'll see more on this next week. If he can create the beautiful and mysterious and wonderful universe and world we live in, he can be trusted. And we don't have to be afraid. So the main point of this chapter is more than theology. It's more than apologetics. It's Moses trying to say to Israel, Hey Israel, your God is the God of creation. Rest in, rest in Him. Trust Him. He's good. He can do, remember last week, He's the God of infinite possibility. He can do anything. Don't worry about the gods and the kings and the nations and the giants over there in Canaan. Trust me. Now, chapter 1 
is about the creation of the world in six days. We can divide up the chapter like this. I'll tell you how we'll divide the chapter up, then I'll tell you what we're going to do this morning. The chapter can be divided like this. Verse 1 is the introductory statement. That was last week. And then verse 2, we'll see God is the king over chaos. Verse 2, God is king over chaos. Then verses 3 through 13, God is king who forms, the king who forms the earth. Verses 3 through 13. And then verses 14 through 25, God is the king who fills the earth. The king who fills the earth. So, king over chaos, the king who forms, and the king who fills. My original intention was to preach this entire chapter in one week. You know me well. You got the thinking, studying, writing. That didn't happen. So we're going to do four verses. Is that right? Two through five? Four verses this morning. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll do the next 20 or so. Okay, so that's the outline for the whole chapter, but we're not going to see all of that this morning. We're only going to see God is king over chaos, and then the beginning portion of the king, God, forming the world in day one of creation. So that's where we're going. Number one, God is king over chaos. Verse two. Let's just start by reading verse 1 and then verse 2. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 1, God is seen as the creator of the universe. In verse 2, Moses brings us down to earth. Notice the way the verse starts. The earth. He created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Moses is starting to shrink our purview down onto one particular part of the universe. And by the end of the chapter, it will shrink even farther down to the crowning apex of God's creation Spoiler alert, that's us, man and woman. So he's starting to shrink down our purview. Verse 2 says, There was no order on earth without form. It was empty, void, chaotic, uninhabitable, and uninhabited. The very opposite of what it would look like at the end of the six days of creation. Like a potter, God is getting ready to take the raw material of the earth and mold it into something Beautiful. Now, Moses is not only giving us information about the state of the earth before the first command of verse 3. He's also telling us something about God. I've wrestled with this. I, I, I Literally, in my notes, I was like, why is verse 2 in the Bible? Why is verse 2 here? Why doesn't it just go from God created the heavens and the earth, and on day one, God said, you know, let there be light. Why verse 2? Why is it in our Bible? I, I, I want to try to give the best reason I could come up with. I want you to notice in verse 2, three parallel clauses. First, the earth was without form and void. Second, darkness was over the face of the deep. Third, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a direct parallel between clause 2 and clause 3, face of the deep, face of the waters. Moses, it appears, is giving us a progression here. He moves from the totally negative, without form and void, to the ambiguous darkness was over the face of the deep, to the mysterious but hopeful last phrase, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What is Moses doing here? Totally negative, ambiguous, mysterious, but hopeful. What is Moses doing? I think what he's saying is that the situation of the earth, before the creative commands of God start in verse 3, the situation of the earth is dark, but promising. Dark, but promising. Earth was in chaotic disorder. One commentator described it as a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. But in the darkness, there's movement. 
There's mysterious movement. The third phrase, the third parallel phrase is key. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Ruach of Elohim, spirit, wind, breath, word could mean any of those. By the way, in Hebrew, there aren't any capital letters. So our English Standard Version puts spirit with a capital S. They're making an interpretive decision, saying this is the third person of the Trinity, which I think is good and right and okay, by the way. But in Hebrew, it just says Ruach, no capital S, spirit, wind, breath, presence of God. This Ruach of Elohim is, it says, hovering. Hovering, what a cool word, hovering. Hovering over the face of the waters, moving back and forth, watching, waiting. We may wonder how God could be present here if it says darkness is over the face of the deep. How could the God of light be present in darkness? Well, remember the psalmist in Psalm 139 says that even the darkness is not dark to God. God doesn't have a light switch in his throne room. (laughs) The psalmist also says, darkness is as light with you. God has no trouble seeing in the dark. His eyes aren't like our eyes. Darkness is opaque to us, transparent to God. The Bible even says that God sometimes veils himself in darkness. Did you know that? I hadn't realized this before. Sometimes the Bible talks about God veiling himself, covering himself with darkness while he waits to reveal himself. Let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, Mount Sinai. Moses said the mountain where God had descended. The mountain was wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. And that God's voice came out of the midst of the darkness. The psalmist says in Psalm 18, thick darkness was under God's feet and that God made darkness his covering when he came down to meet with the psalmist. So the Bible talks about God sometimes veiling himself with darkness while he waits to come and reveal himself. So while the darkness is over the face of the deep, tells us that this is Moses describing yet another way of him describing the primeval wasteland of the earth. He's also suggesting that God is present but hidden in the wasteland, waiting to reveal himself. And then this, of course, is made explicit at the end of the verse. Darkness is there. In the verse 2, in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering, the Ruach. Wind, breath, spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. This word ruach, by the way, is a vivid image of the powerful presence of God moving mysteriously over the waters. Have you ever stood in a strong wind? It's great entertainment, by the way, if you like Google uh, the the videos of the meteorologist in a hurricane. Do you all ever watch that stuff? No? No. You know, they're trying to report, you know, they're getting blown to pieces. It's really funny. Um, or, or you've been in the presence of someone with really strong breath. You're like, whoa, I got to get out of here. You know, thank God for face coverings. There's something mysterious and strong, and powerful, yet invisible about this Ruach, about this breath, this spirit, this wind. God is there, even if He's hidden. It says He's hovering. This word is used one other time. It's used over in Deuteronomy to talk about an eagle hovering over its young. It's back and forth, protecting, covering, watching over, ready for action. The Spirit of God is there and ready for action. Over the primordial muck, God's Spirit is moving. As we'll see in more detail next week, the days of creation show us God's kingly supremacy over the entire world. But again, why verse 2? 
Why verse 2? Why is verse 2 here? This chapter is supposed to be about God's supremacy over the cosmos. Could it be that Moses wants to tell the people of Israel and us that God is also mysteriously present in the dark and disordered places? Perhaps Moses wants to say at the very beginning, it is super interesting that this is the second verse in the Bible. And at the beginning, Moses is saying, God is present over creation and chaos. Perhaps people like the Israelites and people like us needed to be reminded that though we face the unknown, the unpredictable, though we walk through the dark, our God is there. Even this, I wonder if you believe this, even that God sometimes hides Himself in the dark. Have you ever considered that notion? That God is purposefully hiding himself in the dark, hovering, not taking a nap, right? He didn't just turn the lights off because he was tired. Remember Isaiah 40? He never gets tired. He's not weary. He never needs a nap. He's always awake. He's sometimes hidden, but he's always awake, watching, waiting. Moving back and forth. Preparing, even longing to bring order out of chaos, beauty out of this function, to fill up empty places, create something wonderful out of something tragic. One of my main jobs as a pastor and, and all of our elders, I think, bear this responsibility, but one of my main jobs as the regular teacher and preacher of God's Word is to, is to do something you might not expect, you might not have ever thought about. One of my main jobs is to prepare you for suffering. To prepare you for suffering. Now you're like, John, thanks. You know, really needed that pick-me-up this morning. But this is, this is just... I try not to be a pessimist. I try to be a realist. Let's just look things in the face and say what it, what it is, right? We're either coming out of suffering, we're in it, or we're headed right into it. That's where we are this morning. All of you are, are there, maybe a little bit of both, all three. I think one of the main jobs that the shepherds of God have is to prepare the sheep of God to walk through the dark valleys. What I've seen is that it's the ones who will make it through the dark valley are the ones who understand that God sometimes hides himself in the dark. And they don't just throw their hands up and walk away when stuff starts going crazy. They've been taught, their minds understand and their hearts feel the truth of a God who is with them. and sovereign enough to work the darkest, chaotic, most chaotic, disordered, dysfunctional, tragic events towards something better. We can't plan for every contingency. Some of us, some of us need to stop trying. We can't prevent every disaster. We can't fix what we've broken we can't clean up our messes. We can't heal ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can plan for tomorrow, but we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. 
one of the ways I want to, this morning, try to prepare you for suffering is to remind you that our God descended into darkness for us. I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in Jesus, God willingly, key word, willingly, Bible even says joyfully, walked into the pitch black wrath of God, drinking every drop of it for sin and sinners so that we don't have to. That the Son of God willingly stayed in that pitch black darkness until the work of the Father was done. Unrushed, unhurried, in agony, but going forward, humbly, faithfully. Jesus descended into darkness so that we might not despair when we have to follow Him there. So I challenge you, brothers and sisters, to remember that God has descended into darkness for us. And I also challenge you to challenge your fears. Our fears don't have to own us or define us. Challenge the fears that grip you with the truth that God is hovering over your life even when you descend into darkness. So when the darkness comes, ask God to help you remember His presence. Ask Him to help you feel His presence. I know this is totally subjective. We just learned this morning, like, be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a super subjective aspect of following Jesus. Have you ever prayed, God, I don't know what's going on. Please help me to feel you. You ever pray that way? I need to feel your presence. I need to feel your love. I need to be reminded that you are with me, that this isn't an idea, but a reality. When the darkness comes, we must wait. One of the things I wrestled with this week as I thought about this is, you know, it's kind of easy to say, well, God is working all the stuff together to make something beautiful, but actually sometimes we never get to see the beautiful. Did you know that? Have you experienced that? Sometimes it just stays a mess for a lot longer than we ever anticipated. So when I say that God is ordering the disorder and bringing beauty out of ashes, what I mean ultimately is that there's coming a day when Jesus steps out of heaven and back onto this earth where, the psalmist says, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So sometimes... Sometimes, sometimes we don't get to see the beauty that God is working, but we will. But we will. Remember the song we sing? Christ is mine forevermore. It says this, Mine are tears and times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes His work in me. There's a day of completion that's coming. So while we wait, we trust that God is blowing the chaotic events and circumstances of our lives into something beautiful, even if we don't get to see it for a long time. And last thing I will say, while we wait, we need to ask for help. It is not smart or wise to try to walk through a dark valley by yourself. It's a good way to get killed or to get hurt or to get lost. And this is one of the hardest parts of my job. I can't make you do any of this. Some of you are hurting so deeply and you refuse to talk to anybody. You're like, I got this. I'm just going to, you know, just keep believing. Keep showing up to church while the bottom is falling out and nobody even knows. Nobody even knows. Because you're so consumed with looking strong all the time and impressive. Nobody's impressive. Jesus is impressive. Amen? Ask for help if you need help. That 
It is a sign of maturity. Immature people don't ask for help. Strong people ask for help. Weak people continue to try to figure it out without anybody else. I hope that that's not us. So while we wait, we ask for help. We keep trusting that God is up to something. Let me quote an an even older hymn that you may know. You might remember this hymn. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So where is God? He's hovering, he's moving, he's king over this chaos of verse 2. He's waiting, he's preparing, he's longing to do something amazing. And then in verse 3, so that's verse 2, king over chaos. Then beginning in verse 3, we start to see the king of the universe start to form the earth. This is days 1 through 3 of creation. We're only going to do day 1 today. Day 1 is in verses 3 through 5. Let's look at day 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening there was morning the first day. Notice the first phrase of verse 3. At the very beginning of this narrative, we learn that the means of creation is, is the word of God. And God said. And God said. This verb sets the tone for the entire passage, this entire chapter, and the rest of the Bible. It tells us right out of the gate that the word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. And isn't it cool that you're actually holding it in your hands right now? You're holding something that I believe can create something out of nothing. The Word of God speaks, and when God speaks, things happen. We're going to see this formula throughout the days of creation. And God said, and there was. Verse 3, and God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and things happen. Now in the New Testament we learn that, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, through the Son, the second person of the Trinity, through the Son God created the world. And that the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or in John chapter 1, all things were made through Him. The Son, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So God created through His Word, verse 3, but then the New Testament gives the Word a name, Jesus Christ. The Word of God creates. The Word of God is the Son of God, is Jesus. And this Word who created also redeems. This Word of God creates and redeems Creation. The same God who made you stands ready to redeem you. Christ created the cosmos and died on a cross to call you out of chaos and make you a citizen in his city. That's some serious alliteration. Okay, I worked hard on that one. Here we go. Christ created the cosmos and died on a cross to call you out of chaos and make you a citizen in his city. Christ creates, Christ redeems. Then back to verse 2, quickly, Spirit of God, Ruach of Elohim, hovering over the waters. Theologians for millennia have said, and I agree that this is the third person of the Trinity. It's fair and right and good to see all three members of the Trinity working as one in creation. The Spirit is there. The Father, all things originate in the mind of the Father. 
carried out through the agency of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one creation. Creation is therefore, I wish I could preach on the Trinity. I decided not to. I'm sorry, Mason. Creation is infused. If this is true, creation is infused with a mysterious power and beauty because it's an overflow of a mysteriously beautiful God. The Trinity created. Now let's get into what's happening here on day one. On day one, God speaks light into the darkness that covered the earth. The introduction of light into the universe marks the first step from disorder to order. Without light, there can be no order. Like without the word of Christ, there can be no salvation. Without the word of Christ, there will only be spiritual chaos. This is why John says of Jesus, in him, Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. Life only comes by light. If I could go back to what I was saying earlier, depth in our relationships with one another starts with the light of honesty. The honest confession to a friend, to a roommate, to a brother or sister in Christ, hey, I need help. Depth with one another starts with the light of honesty. As long as our lives are shrouded by pretending and pretension, our friendships will stay a mile wide and an inch deep. Harmony and healing and help always start with the light of honesty. Refusing to ask for help will only create more darkness and despair. In him was life, and the life, the life was the light of men. Life comes by light. Without light, on day one, days two through six can't happen. It's interesting in verse four that God then says, or excuse me, um, yeah, that God says that only the light is good, not the light and the darkness. Verse four, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. This is really interesting. Why would he say light good, darkness bad, or not say anything about darkness? Um, well, think about it. None of us prefer to be in darkness. Do any of you love walking into dark rooms, dark buildings? Some of you are like, Halloween's coming up. I actually kind of do love that in a twisted kind of way. Most of us don't prefer darkness. Have you ever walked through a forest at night without a flashlight? Have you ever walked through a cemetery at night without light? Have you ever walked into a... a Sometimes at the church building, all the lights are off and I'll have to walk down this long hallway and it's all dark. It freaks me out. I'm like praying, you know, God save me. Darkness. There's something about darkness that reminds us of chaos. Chaos regains a certain power at night. Why do you think most crimes happen at night? My mom used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. And she's right. Amen? But after night, morning. After night, morning. And there was evening, verse 5. And there was morning, the first day. So every morning, it's as if every morning there's a repeat of the first day of creation. Light floods the earth. Again, maybe this is why we love sunrises. You're like, John, I haven't seen a sunrise in years. <laughs> I sleep till noon. Well, one day, when you become a grown-up, you know, just kidding. Sunrises are glorious. I think this is why when we walk out into the world in the morning, we to work, we to school, school, whatever, we, we walk outside, there's, there's a freshness and a newness, an air of possibility. Why is that? Light, light. Without light, there's no life. Each morning we can be reminded of that initial act of creation. God floods the universe with light. Now, it seems that for the first three days of creation, the light that God created comes from a source other than the sun. Uh, you may not have seen this before. The sun isn't made until day four and the stars. So how can there be light with no sun? 
Well, first, let me say a few things about the text. The text here is emphasizing the creatureliness of light. And by creatureliness, I mean it was created, not like a living creature, but it was created. Light is not self-existent, it's created. That's the emphasis of the text. God made light. It wasn't there already. On day four, he's going to create the sun and the stars. These celestial bodies become mere mediators of a light that was there before them. Now, some skeptics, many skeptics will say, because the Bible says that God created light before the sun, the Bible is stupid and illogical and can't be trusted. You know, this is one example many skeptics love to use. But if, just I think this is sound logic, correct me in the 40 year afterwards, if God can create the things that generate light waves, that he, cre- he can create the light waves themselves. Does that sound logic? If he can create the things that generate light waves, then he's powerful enough to create light waves. And as I said last week, if verse 1 is true, the entire Bible follows. If God created everything out of nothing, he's a God of infinite possibility. Not illogical, you know, blind faith, just turn your mind off and believe. No, infinite possibility. There can be light waves without sources generating them. I take that as permissible, a permissible place to stand. I also think, though, we need to remember that Scripture does portray light as the realm of God, darkness as the realm of the evil one. So on day one of creation, what may be happening is, it's no surprise that God, as God begins to remove the veil, as He begins to reveal Himself, the first thing He does is speaks light into existence. He's coming into His workroom. And interestingly, one more thing will start to land the plane. The Bible also ends the same way it begins. The Bible ends with light from God without a sun. Revelation 22.5 They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So it's entirely possible for there to be light without a sun. Light preceded the sun and will outlast the sun. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, the way we're going to land the plane is connect some dots here. Last thing. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes this passage, and he says that this is the same dynamic at work if and when someone becomes a Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, little g, God, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For, and this is his argument, for, because God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I know that's really wordy and it's kind of convoluted, but it's a basic, basic idea. Without spiritual light from God, we will die in the darkness and live forever in the darkness. Paul says that unbelievers will remain blinded by Satan and unable to to see the light of the gospel until God shines spiritual light into their hearts. God has to say, just as He said here in Genesis 1, He has to say to us when we are still dead in our sins, He has to say, let there be light. And then light floods our souls, our hearts, our minds, and we finally see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so many implications of this, by the way. This means when you're sharing the gospel, if you're not praying for light to come on, then start doing that. (laughs) 
God has to turn the lights on. You're not going to like convince somebody into spiritual light. You know, you're not going to persuade them with some beautiful apologetic presentation. God has to turn lights on. This also means that as Christians, we have no ground for boasting. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. We're only saved because of a creative work of God in our hearts. We were in a pitch black satanic room. And we weren't even looking for the light switch. And God walked in and turned it on so that we could see the beauty of Jesus Christ. God took our blindfold off. God turned the lights on. God gave us eyes to see the glory of Christ. God said, let there be light. So God gets the glory and we walk in humility before him and before others. This also means that being a Christian means that as we begin to see Jesus as the beautiful God that he is, our lives will begin to change and start to reflect more and more of his beauty and his glory. This also means that people who look at Jesus and are unimpressed or unchanged still have blinders on. And it, and it, I'm trying to say this carefully, it doesn't matter whether you say you're a Christian or not. I can say I'm a hamburger, but I'm not a hamburger, right? This is just basic logic. It doesn't matter what you profess. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized or are a church member or are super generous with your money and the nicest person on campus. If the lights haven't come on and you aren't consumed with the beauty of Jesus Christ, then you're still lost. Now, what are some ways we can discern whether the lights have come on? What are some ways we can know whether we are in the light or not? Well, let me give you a few examples. Someone who's excited about heaven, but bored by Christ, Christians, and the local church may still be in the darkness. Can I say that again? Because that's so pervasive in our culture in the South, in Dallas, Texas. Someone who's excited about heaven, but not excited about Christ, Christians, or the local church may still be in the darkness. Just read the book of 1 John for more on any of these illustrations I'll give. Someone who thinks that heaven will be great, whether Jesus is even there, may still be in the darkness. Someone who likes Jesus and is interested in following Him, but not interested in obedience, holiness, or suffering, may still be blind. It's a package deal. Someone who's bothered by other people's sins more than their own may still be blind. Now, on the other hand, someone who's in the light of Christ loves Christians, not perfectly, but more and more. Loves Christians, loves the local church because they love God who's given them light. They desire fellowship with God, not just an eternal vacation in heaven. They understand that following Jesus will be hard. Now, this is so crucial. Please hear this. They understand that following Jesus will be hard, but they're so compelled by what they've seen, the goodness, the beauty, the truth, the love of Jesus Christ, that they're all in. Come what may, come what may, they're ready to follow because they've been captured by a light that they can't turn off. Is that you? Is that you? Is heaven going to be glorious if Jesus is not there? Those who've had the blindfold removed and seen the light of Christ. Interestingly, that passage I read, it says the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The face of Jesus. The glory of God in His face. Have you seen that? And things start to change. You're not content with just the status quo anymore. You understand that he's more than your ticket out of hell. You understand that he's a dear friend. You understand that he's not your magic genie who's going to make you rich and healthy if you rub him the right way. You understand that he's a compassionate, tender, kind, faithful husband. You understand that he's not waiting for you to clean up your life. 
He's not waiting for you to get your act together before he turns the lights on. He turns the lights on and he walks into the room of your life and he starts to rearrange everything. <laughs> it's kind of painful, amen? It's super painful and beautiful. So becoming a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, is the result of a creative word of God. Let there be light, and there was. Has God spoken that into your heart? Everyone who turns away from their sins and turns to this Lord of light in faith will be saved and will be made a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. If you'd like to talk with me or maybe the friends you came with more about what it means to follow Jesus, be happy to have that conversation. Just grab me or one of your friends over lunch or in the hallway this afternoon. We'd be happy to talk more about these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being so good and patient and kind. Thank you for speaking into our hearts in a creative way. Lord, as a, just as a little boy in my own life, you just, you just came down and you spoke into a super dark place. And you said, you're mine. I love you. Lord, I pray that you would do that with, with hearts and people in the room this morning. I don't know where everyone's at. And uh, you do. You know where people are at. I pray that you would draw people to Christ. Show us the light, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that sometimes you allow darkness to descend because you plan to meet us there. Hovering, watching, waiting, preparing, longing to do Something amazing. Lord, meet us, please, where we are. And give us grace and humility to reach into the lives of others, asking for help when we need help and giving help when asked for help. Make us this kind of church, I pray. In Jesus' name.